0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is always a pleasure and a privilege to be able to come together to worship God, and especially a blessing on such a beautiful morning and had the opportunity to come together. Remember all that God has done for us, spend some time together in his word and singing praises to his name. As you well know, next Sunday uh, is Easter Sunday, and uh, there's a little secret about that. You know, the secret is that we don't do anything different that day than we do any other day, any other Sunday, do we? Because we're always remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we've just done together in the Lord's Supper, but... In the world at large, there is a special significance attached to that Sunday. And so there'll be some folks uh, willing to come and worship God who don't normally. And so I want to encourage you this week to think about somebody, pray about somebody, and invite somebody to come and be with you. There are some invitation cards on the tables in the back that you can use if you so choose. Invite them to come and be here for worship, and then we'll have a brunch together following and a time of fellowship. And uh, the one thing that you can be assured of is they will have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And uh, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what Jesus told us to do, go and make disciples of all the nations. And we do that by telling them about his death, burial, and resurrection And so that's what we'll be talking about next Lord's Day. And I hope that you will uh, make it a point to try to have somebody here with you to uh, celebrate what God has done. Well, much to the relief of some, we are arriving at the end of 1 Peter. Uh, We started this back in uh, 2018, I think. Uh, Hasn't been that long ago, but as you know, there have been some delays, been some gaps. But uh, this morning we are looking at the last section of 1st Peter. And we need to be reminded what Paul said in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God. And because it is breathed out by God, then he says it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We know that scripture well, we've heard it a lot of times, but I wonder, I wonder if sometimes we pay attention to the very first word, all. All scripture is inspired of God. All scripture is profitable, not just some of it, but all of it. That means all of it's important, that means all of it has a purpose, it means all of it has a message for us. But when we come to the ending of a letter like First Peter, very often we look at that and we think, well, let saying. Uh, Uh, hello, and uh, from so-and-so, and and, uh, just kind of housekeeping, you know, just sort of the end of the the thing, and we just sort of rush through it. And I'm pretty sure we shouldn't do that because it is part of Scripture, and it's not something that we ought to uh, overlook. First of all, in this uh, last few verses, there are some names that we need to know. Uh, There's, first of all, a man by the name of Silvanus, who also is known as Silas in the New Testament. Uh, Silvanus is the uh, Greek form of this name, uh, Silas, so this man uh, who uh, was the, uh, part of, uh, had part in the uh, writing of this letter uh, from Peter and also in the writing of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He's named as, along with Paul and uh, Timothy as a co-author of that letter. He traveled with Paul on his second and third missionary journeys, so he was a close associate of both Paul uh, and Peter. And now Peter says, I have written briefly by Silvanus, and that's an interesting expression. What does it mean? It may mean simply that Silvanus <laughs> carried the letter. You know, somebody had to do that. They didn't have much of a postal service in those days, and so you had to give the letter to somebody, and then they took it. They delivered it. Hand delivered it for you. And it may be that that's what Silvanus did for Peter, that Peter put the letter into Sylvanus's hand. Silvanus delivered it to the churches in Central Asia Minor. Uh, to whom Peter was writing. But it may mean more than that. It may mean that Silvanus had a more active role. You know, people have often wondered how could an uneducated fisherman like Peter have written a letter in Greek because his his native language would have been Aramaic, a long way from Greek. And so with him not having studied, how could he possibly have written it? And so some people have said, I don't believe that uh, Peter wrote this letter. Uh, because uh, it's written in good Greek. Well, maybe he dictated it to Sylvanus and uh, Sylvanus wrote it down. Maybe that's what he means by having written by Sylvanus. But he has some part in the composition and perhaps the delivery of this letter. Then he also mentions uh, someone he refers to as she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Some folks have read that and said, well, that must be Peter's wife, she who is at Babylon. In other words, she's with Peter, uh, and as we might say today in sending a, a letter, nobody sends letters anymore, an email, uh, sending an email, you know, that will say, you know, on our behalf and also on the behalf of our spouse says hi. But I don't think that's uh, what this is about. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to think that this is uh, Peter's wife. I think more likely this is a church, that this is the church at babylon the elect lady second john verse 1 describes a church that way churches were often referred to in the feminine as she one reason for that is the greek word for church is itself feminine in form but i think even more importantly is the fact that the church is said to be the bride of christ and so the church is she so when peter says she who is at babylon i think he's talking about the church but not who is in literal Babylon because literal Babylon didn't exist anymore. It had already been wiped off the map. Uh, and so when he uses this reference to Babylon, he's talking about Rome. Uh, ancient Jews and Christians both frequently did that because just like Babylon in the Old Testament was the arch enemy of the people of Israel, destroyed the temple in 586 BC. So now Rome is the arch enemy of the people of God. And so Peter, I think, is in Rome as he's writing the letter, and he sends greetings from the church at Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And then he says, so does Mark, my son. Now, Mark, my son, probably is not a literal reference to his biological son, but to uh, a man that we know from the book of Acts, John Mark. Uh, John Mark, who traveled briefly with Paul on his first missionary journey. John Mark, who early Christian sources tell us was later with Peter in Rome. John Mark, who is most likely the author of the Gospel of Mark, is also with Peter and is sending greetings to these churches in uh, Asia Minor. And so he tells all these people to greet one another with a kiss of love, a typical early Christian way of greeting, because Remember how throughout the letter he has encouraged love and fellowship? And I think what he's saying here is don't withhold that kiss of love from one another. Don't withhold your fellowship from each other. Don't leave anybody out. Uh, Pay attention to everybody and include everybody in your fellowship. All of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, he says. and You go back to chapter uh, 1 and verse 2 where he said, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is what's sometimes called a wish prayer. This is what I'm praying for you. This is what I'm wishing for you. May may God's peace be on you. So all these people had a a part in this letter, and uh, it's important for us to know about these people because it reminds us that this letter was not written in a vacuum. This is not a piece of ancient fiction, but this is from real people, to real people, about real needs and real problems. And that's why we can take it seriously as scripture today, because it is about us too. It's about our needs. It's about our problems as well. But there's something else in this closing part of the letter in verse 12 that is perhaps the most important thing that Peter says in these verses. He tells us why he wrote what he wrote. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God, he says. Stand firm in it. Peter says that the primary theme of his letter is grace. I don't think we normally think of 1 Peter as a letter about grace. We think of Galatians as a letter about grace. Uh, we think of Romans as a letter about grace. We think of Ephesians 2, certainly as a text, a chapter about grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But in what way is First Peter about grace? Well, we need to know, uh, because he says stand firm in it. And we can't stand firm in it unless we understand what that True grace is, because notice that's what he says. Not just grace, but this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in that. Most of this letter, as we've seen throughout our study of it, has been about suffering. It's been about suffering. It's been written to suffering Christians about their suffering and and encouraging them in their suffering. So what does that have to do with grace What does suffering have to do with grace? There are two texts in this letter that I think hold the key to what Peter means when he says the true grace of God. So I hope you'll have your Bible open to look at those with me. First Peter two, verses 18 through 20. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you uh, sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now that translation gracious thing is the ESV's translation of this. The word literally is just grace. It is grace, he says, if you suffer unjustly. It is grace, he says, if you endure it in the name of Christ. If you undergo that for him, that, he says, is grace. And then chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, All are to show humility to one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, he says, after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, both of those texts in 1 Peter 2 and in 1 Peter 5 have to do with suffering in faith. They have to do with our faith being tested by trials and submitting to God continuing in his service and to live our lives in humility and to suffer in the name of Christ. So the true grace of God that Peter is writing about is experiencing grace even as we suffer in Christ's name. Experiencing grace even as we suffer in Christ's name. Why? Well when you're suffering Those are the times when you need grace the most, right? Most of us do not seek God's grace when we don't feel we need it. We always need it. We just don't always feel it. And so when we're suffering, we feel it the most. And we reach out to God for it, and we receive God's grace. We receive his support. We receive his encouragement. We need to remember that in Scripture there are two kinds of grace. There's, first of all, what we might call God's saving grace. That's what I mentioned a minute ago in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. When Paul says it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It is not because of works that we can boast about it because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand for us to live in them. It is by grace through faith. It's not our doing. It is a gift that God gives to us. It is a gift that God bestows upon us. It is undeserved. It is unearned. It's not that we have been given a checklist and we have checked off the right boxes and checked off enough of them that God says, okay, now you're all right. We are right with God because of the blood of Jesus. We are right with God because we are trusting in what Christ has done for us. We are not right with God because we have made ourselves right. We're right with God because he has put us right through Jesus Christ. That's his saving grace. But then there is a sustaining grace. And that's what Peter's talking about. It's also what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember that great passage in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh. There's been so much discussion about that. What was that thorn in the flesh that that Paul suffered? And remember what Paul said about that? He said, I asked the Lord three times to take it away. We can understand that, can't we? Here he is suffering, apparently with some physical malady. And Paul asked God three times, just please take this away. And I suspect one of the reasons Paul was doing that, not only was it suffering for him, but It probably hindered him. It probably inhibited his ability to do what he thought God wanted him to do. And so he asked God three times to remove it, to take it away from him. And each time God said the same thing. Each time God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He wasn't saying, Paul, my saving grace is sufficient for you. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, Paul, my grace can sustain you. My grace can make you able to do whatever I want you to do. My grace can strengthen you. My grace can see you through your troubles. My grace can see you through your trials. My grace will see you through your suffering. That is God's sustaining grace. And it's that sustaining grace that Peter's talking about in chapter 5 and verse 12, the true grace of God that sustains us through our sufferings. It's when we suffer that we're the most like Jesus. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Peter says, Rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Rejoice when you share in Christ's sufferings. You know, we talk a lot sometimes about being like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to have the personality of Jesus. We want to be kind like Jesus. We want to be gracious toward others like Jesus. But you know, if you really want to be like Jesus, you have to suffer. You have to suffer because he's a suffering savior. And we're never more like Jesus than when we are suffering in his name, when we are suffering for his sake. Sharing in that suffering leads to victory. So our time here is aliens and exiles. Remember, that's how Peter's kept describing his readers throughout the letter. That time isn't spent in hopelessness and despair. It's spent in joy, in joyful anticipation of the blessing that is to come. That living hope of a salvation being kept in heaven for us in spite of our trials. That's what Peter opened the letter talking about in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, We rejoice in sharing his sufferings so that we can also rejoice when his glory is revealed. So that, that is the true grace of God. To live in joyful anticipation, even as we suffer for Christ. And Peter says, stand firm in it. Now, think about this for a minute. Why does Peter say that's the true grace of God? I think it has to be because there there always have been and always will be distortions of god's grace distortions of what grace means that gets all twisted and turned around into something that really is not grace at all let me give you some examples Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a book called the cost of discipleship talked about what he called cheap grace cheap grace cheap grace is grace that involves no suffering cheap grace is grace that you receive without having to do anything at all to receive it. Cheap grace is grace that you receive and God expects nothing in return. Cheap grace says you just embrace Christ by faith and from then on it's a free ride and everything's okay no matter what you do, no matter how you live, no matter what you don't do, you're still okay. And God demands nothing in return. You know, that kind of grace or that understanding of grace completely overlooks the fact that by grace, Jesus calls us to be his disciples. He calls us to follow him. And being a disciple is costly. Being a disciple means you have to leave other things behind in order to follow Jesus. Being a disciple means that you allow your own life to be shaped by his until you become more and more like him. The call to discipleship is a call to holiness and service. What did Jesus say in Mark 8, verse 34? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Cheap grace has no cross in it. And that's why it's not the true grace. Because true grace has to have a cross at the center. In 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 17, Peter said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace uh, that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father... Who, him who uh, judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's not cheap grace, folks. That's conforming your life to the, to the will of God. That's conforming your life to the life of Jesus. That's putting away anything that would stand between you and glorifying God. Cheap grace isn't the true grace. It is an illusion. It is an illusion of what grace really is. Here's another one health and wealth grace. Health and wealth grace. So much of the media preaching that people hear these days is about health and wealth grace. This is grace that says, you know what, God really wants to do is bless you with everything you want. That's what grace is all about. And turns out that that's mostly material. God wants to bless you with whatever it is that you want. So you just name that and you claim it, and God will give it to you. That's his grace. You want a new car? He'll give it to you. Don't just go for any car. Go for the top model. Okay, Go for the one with all the goodies on it. God will give it to you. You want a new house, bigger house? Just tell God that's what you want. By his grace, he will give it to you. This kind of grace or this understanding of grace is about getting what you want from God, not about giving God what he wants from you. Not about doing God's will. It's about getting God to do your will. That's why it's not real grace. It has nothing to do with the grace of God. Now, that's naturally a lot more popular than true grace. People would a lot rather be told God wants you to have a new Mercedes than to be told that God wants you to deny yourself and take up a cross and follow Jesus. But it's the only grace that's true grace. The health and wealth grace is a pagan counterfeit of grace. That's all it is. It's a pagan counterfeit of grace. It is not the true grace. It doesn't exalt the Word who became flesh, who suffered and died. It exalts Self and our own desires. The call of this version of grace isn't to follow Jesus even to the point of suffering. It's to get what you want without any suffering. It is not the true grace of God. There's another kind of cheap grace and and false grace that we might call assimilation grace. What does that mean? Assimilation grace means that what God has called us to do is so relate to this world, so be assimilated into this world, that that the world is going to like us. They're going to like everything we do. They're going to like everything we say. They're going to approve of us, uh, and they're going to to go along with us, and they're going to lift us up, and our numbers will swell, and uh, everything will just be great. That's assimilation grace. By God's grace, we will be smiled upon in this world. Whoever came up with that never read the teachings of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? If they hated me, what? They'll hate you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. What did Jesus say? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And that doesn't mean we have to go out and try to get people to not like us. That just means be faithful to Jesus. And they won't. They won't. Why? Jesus said it. He said, "Because they love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil." When you try to speak the truth in an immoral world, when you try to speak the truth of God, and you try to show people what Scripture says about what, what God desires about what's right and what's wrong, why am we going to hate you for it? You'll not be assimilated into the world. You'll be isolated from it. You will be, uh, you'll be uh, kind of sealed off in a little capsule of your own. You don't want that because you want to be able to relate to the world like Peter said. Peter said that we are to relate to the world, that we are always to be ready to give an account of the hope that we have within us to anyone who asks us. So that means interacting with the world. and We want to do that as much as we possibly can. But the world on its side will not have it. The world on its side will not want to hear from us. We are not being called to be assimilated into this world. We are called to be faithful. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He says, conduct yourselves in such a way so that when they speak against you as wrongdoers, they will see your good works and they'll be put to silence When they speak against those wrongdoers, notice he didn't say if they speak against, they're going to. It's not if, it's when. It's when. As long as we're faithful to Christ, that is going to happen. A church that is faithful to its calling will lift up the banner of holiness and will be rejected by the world, not praised by it. Because the world loves darkness and not light. Trying to gain acceptance of the world is not the true grace of God. The true grace of God is exactly what Peter says in this letter. It's knowing that we have a great salvation. It's knowing that we have a great eternity waiting for us, an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, he said in chapter 1. It's knowing that we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and that we are called to lives of holiness and if necessary, even to suffering as Jesus suffered. The true grace of God is knowing that when we do, we experience God's grace no matter what we're undergoing now. That is the true grace of God. And so what does Peter say? Stand firm in that. Stand firm in that. But to stand firm in grace, you've got to be in that grace. To stand firm in grace, you have to turn to Christ. To stand firm in grace, you have to have received the forgiveness of sins through his blood. To stand firm in grace, you have to do what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 21, when he talked about being baptized into Jesus, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ then you're in that grace, stand in it. Don't settle, don't settle for a false grace, a cheap grace, a grace that asks nothing of you. Rather, accept God's true grace in Christ and stand firm in that. And if you're ready today, right now, to commit yourself to Christ and to following him and to stand firm in his true grace, You're invited to come and tell us while we stand together and sing.